0: Hey everybody, I have some terrific news. I cannot share it until next week, but here's a hint. It is regarding the documentary about psychedelics that I finished last year. Some good news coming next week that I can't share this week, <laughs> but, uh, but very excited excited enough that I'm excited to share that I have something that I will be able to share in the future. That's how excited i am about it so that's good also i've been booking more stuff by the way i have minneapolis and grand rapids coming up where i'm doing both the psychedelic show and my regular show that week so you can see a whole lot of me i have uh omaha uh coming up in june i i'm confirming sarasota florida and and cleveland Ohio, Youngstown, Ohio, uh, Pittsburgh coming up. Uh, a bunch of stuff being added shortly. Keep on checking back into shanemoss.com to find out more. Thanks for the support on Patreon and for reviewing the podcast. I haven't uh, we haven't gotten um, many uh, reviews of uh, the podcast uh, in in a while. I'm going through. I'm going. Th- I love reading the reviews. I get a high from it, and I'm going through review withdrawal. So, if you haven't yet written a review on iTunes, it would mean a whole lot to me if you took um, a minute, I think I said 30 seconds the last time that I hounded, and people said that it took a little longer than 30 seconds, up to even a minute to write. So, if you do have a spare minute, or even two, maybe you want to put some thought behind it, uh, that would be absolutely Delightful and wonderful really helps me out. doesn't just make me feel good, but it also helps bump up the podcast into the itunes charts and and uh the kind of different like new and noteworthy and featured sections and that sort of thing that they use. They use a number of different criteria to figure out what podcasts to promote and uh and reviews and recent reviews is one of them, so it would be uh, incredibly helpful if you, the wonderful listener, would write a wonderful review of the podcast. So thank you, and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Everybody, today I'm talking with professor of religion at Drake University here in Des Moines, Iowa. Jennifer Harvey is joining me today with her new book, Raising White Kids. Thanks, Jennifer, for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, first question. So you've been kind of dealing with, you've been uh, very interested in anti-racism racism as a white person for 20 years or so, how does a uh, professor of religion get into the topic of race?
1: Well, a professor of religion does that probably first by being interested in race and then becoming a professor of religion. <laughs> right. um, you know, the way I think about it in my work as a teacher is a uh, I, I teach a lot about the justice movements, the civil rights movement, which was a religious justice movement, even though, of course, it was about race. Um, and I also think about the ways religious values inform uh, how we act in the world. So, um, you know, what values my training really in Christianity, what values within Christianity have lend themselves to anti-racist justice commitments, and what values, quite frankly, have historically um, caused lots of white Christians to be very complicit with racism. So those kinds of questions are the, the questions I'm wrestling with.
0: Hmm. Um, well, <laughs> I want to get into your book, but now I'm very interested <laughs> if you can break down a little bit of history of, of, uh, of that.
1: Sure. Well so I,
0: I was I was raised uh Christian. I was raised Catholic myself, okay. not not too far from here. Yeah. So it's a, a topic that I'm interested in. I was also raised in uh uh pretty there there wasn't uh a lot of diversity mm-hmm. in my area growing up mm-hmm. and I didn't have much exposure yeah. to uh to other other races and, and it took me Many years before I started uh, understanding other races on any kind of a uh, intellectual level or yeah uh, or anything it, it was probably until my twenties um before I started actually like really thinking about race at all so so anyway
1: well and that so that ends up will end up being a really important um segue to the stuff I'm working on in my book because in fact your story is not unique right even. Right most white Americans until their 20s. That's the story. And that's, that's a large part because of our, because of our history. And, you know, that we're, we're raised in a, I mean, the United States is one of the most segregated countries. It's, even though we're incredibly diverse, our social worlds, our neighborhoods, our cities, our urban suburban divides are so deeply segregated that, we here we are living in one of the most diverse countries in the world and white Americans are we mostly only know other white Americans um, so that i mean so that's a huge phenomena into in you know that needs some grappling with in and of itself um, in terms of the que- you know sort of the question of Christianity i was raised baptist and i'm still baptist but a different kind of baptist the one than the one i was raised in but all christian traditions in the united states that came from europe were Um, part and parcel of both the genocide of Native peoples here and the enslavement of Africans. And so going way back, white Christianity, well, at the time we might call it sort of European Christianity becoming white Christianity. It was the, it was the cultural force that was, um, you know, originally part of white supremacy here. And um, throughout our history as a country, unfortunately, there's uh, the civil rights movement is the closest we came, perhaps, to sort of, you know, larger white Christian um, buy into the anti-racist project. But by and large, white Christianity has been very either actively complicit with those social structures or at least pass- passively tolerant um, of that, which I actually, unfortunately, also see think right now in the political climate, we're seeing some of the um, we're, we're reaping some of the outcomes of that sort of historic that historic pathway of, you know, white Christian support of racism, unfortunately. Um, Hard stuff.
0: Yeah, I, well, I was, I was really fascinated. I saw um, a talk of yours online and you, and you broke down um, starting with uh, indentured servitude and kind of broke down how. How race became a social construct, yeah. and there was elements of religion in there as well. And I was, uh, I, I, was blown away by it because I was mostly I was kind of surprised that I had never heard the take before. And I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to our uh, our history.
1: Again, you're not alone. I mean, that's part of the larger crisis we're in. I think is that we've, um, as a country, we've erased ignored or silenced so much of our history i mean people of communities of color black folks latino folks many times do know that history but not because they're learning it in schools right we and so we have this really significant historical forgetting and ignoring of actually some of that history so you're not alone in that again that's part of our larger social um, situation which is i think really dangerous unfortunately
0: can you uh, can you kind of walk through it, th- that uh, that period of history when sure. we when we first? Uh, I just thought it was uh, how it started with indentured servitude. It was just I I was like, wow, how did I not know any of that? Yeah. Uh, can you walk through when when that started? The indentured servitude started in the U.S. and then how it uh, eventually moved and evolved into slavery. Sure.
1: So I mean. The global enslavement of Africans was already well underway and had been for um you know well more than a hundred years. but um on this land base, what we now call the United States, which of course, it wasn't at the time, um, indentured servitude really got underway by about sixteen well, sixteen nineteen is when we know we had on uh, on what we now call the United States. Um, I think 12 African peoples, we have some documentation of their presence here, um, but we also had by that time indentured servitude getting up and running like in the region around Virginia and other parts of, of the colonies, the emerging colonies in the early 1600s, and lots of those indentured folks were, well, they were largely European folks. There were initially many more indentured servants from Europe here than there were enslaved African peoples. Um But so that was like the first third of the 1600s.
0: And what was indentured servitude? What's the difference between that and slavery?
1: Well, the main difference is that indentured servants. um, Well, one difference, of course, the most significant difference is that African peoples, of course, were um, brought here through violence in shackles always against their will, wrenched from their families that, I mean, in terms of the actual experience of enslavement, that is a radical difference than indentured servants who came, were often might um, be experiencing coercive, like they were forced to come because they were in debt in England, for example, or they maybe they were, um, you know, struggling economically in England because life was pretty lousy in Europe in the first part of the 1600s. And so, came here hoping that there would be work conditions that would give them some sort of uh, on-road into um, a way to sort of feed their families. Um, So it was also really lousy conditions, but it was not enslavement. I mean, that part really matters. But indentured servants were initially were brought here or came here with contracts where I think seven years was the first um, standard contract. So someone would come, they would be given a master of their assigns for seven years. So for seven years, they would work for that person. They would work the land. Um, Of course, we also have to remember this was Pahout and Confederacy land. If we're talking the Virginia region, it wasn't actually European land to take. So that's another part of this story. But after seven years, the person who... Um, had worked for their master, the indentured servant from Europe would be released from their contract and they would initially the agreement was they would be given a small plot of, plot of land then that they could farm. And they would far you know, they could set up a farm and maybe send away to England for their family to come or find someone to marry and start a family here on that land on that small plot of land that then they could um, develop a sustainable family farm. So that was what an indentured contract looked like. Okay. So over that, so what eventually happened here is that by about the sixteen, maybe sixteen thirty, um, the the tobacco production was becoming so successful that, um, and the colonies, especially around Virginia, were planting so much tobacco and flooding the market so massively that they. You know, that irony of capitalism, when you're successful, you make less money, right? So they started being, finding their profit margins decreasing, decreasing. And so the colony, the Virginia region, um, they started um, extending indentured contracts. And so instead of, like, diversifying their crop or planting less tobacco, In order to increase their profits they tried to cut their wage costs and so they started increasing indentured contracts and then saying okay you're going to work longer and when you're done working we're not going to give you a plot of land because we need that land now because we need more tobacco and um thinking about well and then if we don't give people land to do sustainable farming then they'll be they'll need jobs and so that we can hire them during planting season and harvest season to work and so there was this like way that indentured servitude sort of spread into this um, sort of wage labor pool. Um, right, because at
0: first it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't sound like the, seven years of, uh, you know, a lot of people these days need to work for seven years of school and whatnot to to try to afford a crappy apartment or whatever. Right. i tried to put myself in their place back then. It seems like, oh, you get this huge farm after, after yeah, seven right, years of right. work. Yeah, yes. Doesn't sound, <laughs> I guess that's how they sell the deal early on. And then, Maybe so, and then, yeah. And it was a slippery slope to taking advantage of people once they did get here
1: yeah yeah and again like largely at least numbers wise in the first third of the 1600s more European peoples and historians aren't really clear the African peoples that were here and were increasingly being forced to come here in that part of the century um, they were certainly enslaved but they also their sort of terms of service the historians sort of disagree about there's not complete clarity about what that looked like at least Uh, On this land base But again it was still a global slave trade That was going on But what happened was by the mid 1600s And this is the part that kind of um, Should blow our minds I think And that more of us in the US need to learn About is that in the mid 1600s In 1640 there was a case Where there were three indentured servants Who had run away together They had left their contracts early And they were caught They, They had run away together They had gotten caught They were brought back to trial for having broken their contract, and in the course of meeting out their punishment, um, the judge said, "And this, we have this primary document that two of the indentured servants, Victor and James Gregory, who were Dutch and Scottish, um, they would be, you know, whipped for their punishment, and then they would have to serve their master an extended of, period of time, and then on top of that, they would have to serve the colony." before they would have served their punishment. But then the judge turned to the third indentured servant, whose name was John Punch. And the judge said, in the case of John Punch, being a negro, right, the Spanish word for black, he will serve his master for the course of his natural life. And so after being whipped also. So here we see this moment where three men who are in servitude status had run away together. The only difference is skin tone. Mm-hmm. And the and the John Punch is punished with uh, you know, enslavement for life. And that's when we can see that oh, this thing that we now call race they weren't calling it race at the time, right? In the first third of the sixteen hundreds it was, oh, we are Christians, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning Europeans, and they are heathens and savages. It was religion. Right, but then by the mid sixteen hundreds, it starts the religion piece starts to get sucked up into what we would now call race, and so that really we see the first obvious glimmer of it um, in the case of John Punch, where blackness, his having dark skin, means he's going to be enslaved for the rest of his life, which we don't ever have a single case of that happening to a European uh, descended person.
0: Hmm. And so, this is the some of the foundation of of kind of what makes someone identify as uh as black today when when they say that they're uh when someone talks about being a black person that means more than just the color of their skin it it often is correlated with uh this long history and and having had to fight and showing resilience and because it's it's just (laughs) i try to i mean it's just impossible to put as a straight white guy to put myself in in that place because to me as as a white person I don't really think about my race I don't I don't really like I'm never like well as a white uh, I guess I am right now
1: yeah good as as a a white (laughs) person
0: as a white person I often don't think about being a white person right (laughs) and And, that's
1: where we need to start right right And,
0: and so it just never it never really even occurs to me to think about it um, and, and that's, that's just a drastically different thing than, uh, you, you talk about in, in your book, you use, uh, black with a capital B yeah. and, and why, why is that?
1: Well, I do that because, um, back to that 1600s that, that even though white supremacy, right, we can look at that case of John Punch and what came after, which was the next 40 years, a very careful building of what we now call chattel enslavement, lifelong servitude, inheritable, uh, no rights that anyone has to respect, that all gets built by the 1690s. Um, you know, white supremacy built that, and it all turned on this notion of who's black, right? And um, so blackness in that sense kind of, uh, whites, I'd like to say white supremacy kind of created this category black, but with a small b. And people of African descent who were, of course, uh devastatingly impacted by that. I mean, in ways that we don't even have words for the trauma and the horrors of that also always never accepted that definition of their humanity. And so the way I think is helpful to think about it, the way I, the reason I capitalize black and the way that race makes sense to me when I look at that history is people of African descent always resisted, refused, challenged, interrupted, um, created, organized subverted and uh in all kinds of different ways big and small and in the course of doing so said no we are black capital b black right and black is beautiful black lives matter black power um and so i capitalize black whenever i write because i think there's a history uh, there not i think there is a history and clearly a community a culture a productive kind of uh, human phenomena of people of African descent having created something new and different out of that legacy, even while white supremacy continues to, of course, impact black people's lives. But it's never been, it's never determined the um, the meaning of black. You know, in contrast, and this is why we got to start doing the, oh, wait a second, what does it mean to be white, right? European descended peoples, either through uh, not ever thinking about our race in a context of a nation that's really in a racial crisis or where communities of color are in a crisis. Um, we have, our history is largely one of when white supremacy said, Oh, and white, you know, black means this small B, right? Enslavable, et cetera. White supremacy said, and white means this white means you are superior and you have more rights and you can have access to the land and you can, et cetera, et cetera. And for the most part, as a people, we have said, okay, and said, yeah, white supremacy, you can kind of dictate the terms of our identity. And so I never capitalized white for that reason. Like, cause, and I think then the anti-racist goal is, how do we find ways to say to white supremacy, actually, no, you don't get to determine the nature of my existence. I'm going to fight and resist and create and challenge in ways that make sense and are appropriate to my European descendedness, um, Just, just like communities of color, in this case African-descended communities have always resisted that and, and fought that too. European peoples could do that as well.
0: So these are, I mean, I think a little bit of uh, of my ignorance anyway, and I'm sure many other people's, is is uh, just that these are really uncomfortable conversations yeah. to have. Yes. As, as someone who grew up around, you know, the I grew up in a very wholesome area, a very very pleasant. Pe- Everyone seemed to like get along and be very good natured people with with nothing but love in their hearts and right. everything. And and as, as a as a little W uh, growing yes. up, I I I mean, I've I never had any conversations like this growing. And I mean, first off, it's <laughs> I don't know if this is uh, strictly a Midwest thing, but um, these are. Uh, what what I think is so important about your book is, is there are a number of uncomfortable conversations that we need to have with children. And, and I think parents just in general, sometimes I know, I know my parents, sorry, there might be listening right now. were just like my mom, my mom didn't have a uh, didn't even attempt to have like a sex talk with me until I was like twenty-one right. years old. <laughs> like, oh, and then it's my, really awkward. Yeah, <laughs>
1: twenty-one.
0: Ooh. My brother was like thirteen or something <laughs> at the time. It was like almost too late to have it with him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, him right. being nine years younger, right. and uh you know, they're uh, having a having an honest. uh having an honest drug conversation yeah. with children can be really awkward. And, and uh, you know, you have things like a D.A.R.E. program or something, which seemingly kind of fails uh, kids as far as I can Just tell. Just say no. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and so there's, uh, race isn't the only tricky problem out there. Right. There's there's uh, a number of topics that that parents have a very, uh, difficult time talking with, with, uh, their kids about, I mean, sex is something that we're all going to have and all going to experience. And what, and, and even that's a very, very difficult thing for parents to talk about with their kids. Now you, you talk about something where, uh, where you're growing up white and there's this, uh, enormous history of, of, uh, you know, white supremacy causing uh, horrific situations, and and now there's all this systemic racism built into these systems, yeah. where uh, there might be government officials and police officers and such that uh, that don't have a racist bone in their body, or might be the most thoughtful and understanding people, are, but they're still working within a system that right. is built that is a racist system, and and this this is uh This is such a tricky conversation. This is why we need your book. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. Please walk Sparky for me. No way. (laughs) I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh. Make it a large deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. Between you and me, Sparky. I would have walked you for free. Ba 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 Offer valid through 4 twenty two or participate in McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required.
0: So you have uh, you have two children? I have
1: two kids. Yeah, 7 oh, and 9. 7 and First 9. First and third grade. So when do you when do you
0: start a conversation like this? How how early do you start having these? Do you do you wait until uh, the awkward time when you're in the grocery store line and there's a there's a person of color and your four year old says like, "Mommy, what? Yeah, what, what's uh, what is that person? Right, or, right. Or how how do you start these conversations?
1: Oh my gosh! So the reality is, ideally we start talking like the moment of the moment our kid hits air comes out of the womb or comes to us through adoption or however we, the children, children come into our lives. The moment they come like way before they can understand conceptually, we need to be, um, letting the language of difference roll off our tongue with them. And so this is, I think about this, I like to talk about it as breaking white silence at every moment that we possibly can. And so, You know, I I think it's helpful to think about a parallel. Like my kids, they're getting to where they can kind of understand it. But when they were two and three and four, they didn't understand why it was important that they eat vegetables, right? They didn't understand vitamins. They didn't understand. But I would say to them, you got to eat your peas because this is important for your health and your body. And I would make them eat peas or I would try and talk about them about You know why fruit is important. Even though they were at age three, they didn't. That just sort of. We talk about things with our kids all the time that they don't quite yet get, and we do it because we start educating and and in culture, you know, socializing them from the moment they're born. And so sometimes when we talk about race, I think it's helpful to realize that we we don't actually need we well first of all we must not wait till our kids can conceptually understand it because by then we've lost all this developmental um ground like our kids only learn to read by us sitting down with them and starting to teach them and you know help them practice reading even though they don't know how to do it yet right um that's how all socialization happens so
0: right like like again if if uh if say uh your mom in the midwest doesn't allow you uh, to talk to girls, uh, ever when, when you're a little kid, you're, you're going to be a little, uh, a little behind the, yeah. the, the curve when it comes to, uh, uh putting yourself in those situations right. later on in life and dating right. and, and everything else. So the same thing can be applied to, uh, uh, to race issues in, in a, uh, in a, uh, increasingly diverse, uh, World and landscape that we find ourselves in.
1: Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And so if if the landscape is deeply diverse, if that's the kind of if we want our kids to value diversity, which you know hopefully we all do, right? Um, I mean, I know that not all of us do, but that's that's what I'm pushing. That's the team I'm rooting for. We have to we have to first of all get rid of this idea that we're supposed to be teaching our kids to be colorblind. Like communities of color have said our difference is beautiful. We see it, we name it, we claim it. And it's not a compliment when white parents tell their kids they shouldn't notice difference. It's not a compliment. So when my, when my kids are really, really tiny, then we're reading books. It's like, Hey, look at that, you know, beautiful African-American girl in that book or that, um, beautiful African, African-American boy. And look, he's carrying a blue backpack and his skin is dark brown and he's got shoes on and he's reading a book, you know, whatever. Like, Letting the language of difference roll off our tongue, mm-hmm. um, so that from very young our kids assume they are supposed to notice difference. That that's a good thing to do. Um, that right there is a huge disruption of white silence because the white white culture right now in this country, post civil rights, folks. I don't know how old you are, but
0: I'm thirty seven. Okay, I'm almost 38. you're a little
1: younger than me, but not too much. Our generation ish. We have all been raised t- uh, in this sort of strange belief that we're supposed to not notice color yeah and it's just it's wrong-headed and it hasn't worked
0: well uh, what if uh just and i'm I'm just trying to put myself in uh in the place of because i often go home and and visit uh with friends that kind of never left this area and Mm -hmm. have kind of remained in this bubble and and i i know a lot of people that um that have uh no Conscious uh, animosity toward any uh, race or or gender or sexuality or whatever, but but maybe uh, someone might say something like, "Well, why why is it why make it an issue if it, you know as long as someone's like not." Uh, uh, intentionally harming like for example if someone's as a as a stand-up comedian um, there's uh there's a lot of diversity um, in comedy which I think is fantastic but I I know that there's some people that that see someone that are like well uh, someone's on stage and all of their jokes are about being black or all of their jokes are about being gay or or like as a straight white person you might go why why is that the thing that defines you why why is that uh such an important uh topic because as again as like a straight it's just like well this is just like normal i don't really think about my skin color and whatnot so i think and maybe this is an unfair assessment but i feel like there are a lot of people that aren't trying to be malicious in any way but are but are just kind of like you know taking the colorblind approach what what is what is the harm in just being like, well, I don't, you know, I'm colorblind. I don't care one way or another. I'm just existing. I'm not discriminating against anyone. Right. But I'm maybe not going to look into these matters that much either. Yeah.
1: So um, a couple things. I mean, there's amazing conversations to be had in a, in a bunch of what you just said. I mean, one, one, one truth is that even if I, as an individual never knowingly discriminate or never actively discriminate or have if this was even possible it's not because racism is as beverly daniel tatum says it's smog in the air we're all breathing it so um even if i could be completely non-racist myself as an individual because we're all part of systems that uh we can go we can barely scratch the surface and the most non-bigoted, non-discriminatory white person in the world, or let's say the United States, barely scratch the surface and we can quickly identify some way in which um, most of us have had some increased access to social goods because of our history of being part of a white genealogy that whether we chose that or not, we are benefiting from it, right? So my kids, they're young, they've not chosen... Um, to get an advantage over their peers of color. They haven't chosen to be in a school system where they are less likely to be um, punished for, uh, you know, they're more likely to be seen as being kids and being playful than they are to be seen as being naughty and unruly and getting punished in disparate ways. They didn't ask for that, but that's going to happen to them because they're white. They're going to be treated differently whether they want to be or not. And so I think those of us that, think we are non-discriminatory non-bigoted let's let's presume that's true Mm -hmm. um i am still um as a as a human being participating in the dehumanization and the harm of others by not caring by deciding i'm just going to go along with things the way they are so for me right there that's an urgent moral crisis period i don't want my kids to you know if i can teach my kids to care about climate change and um you know, my daughter was just like wanting to give money to the World Wildlife Federation to, to help save tigers, right? And that's great. I want her to have that heart. I also want her to see that in her own neighborhoods, um, her fellow children, right, are, are experiencing suffering simply because of these racial constructs we all live in. I want her to care about that. If she doesn't, I have, I think, failed to nurture in her a full sense of her own humanity, right? Because yeah. she's become numb to the suffering of others with whom she's in relationship and so I care I think we all need to care about it at that level because if we're all part of a system it doesn't matter if I'm non-discriminatory and non-racist racism will continue the only way for us to stop this system is to move from non-racism to active anti-racism that's just the reality Um, and I think actually there's a case to be made that all of our lives we would all be flourishing more, more beautifully and fully if we if we like I feel like I'm a more free human for doing that work than if I was not involved in that work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, (laughs) I, I look and it, now in hindsight easy for me to see that um that my life has been a bit easier than a number of minorities where i you, you talk about people ha- having to like fight to empower themselves and I, when i was a kid i was fighting to like not do my homework right, <laughs> was yeah, my, right. that was my right. big the systems like all working for you right <laughs> Right. <Yeah. laughs> and so yeah hopefully hopefully one day we we live in a world where uh, where that's the biggest thing on yeah. on some minorities' platter is right. is not having to worry about uh, getting harassed on their way home from school or, or yeah. going into a dangerous neighborhood or whatever it might be or being discriminated against by law enforcement or whatever else. Right. they're like I was, right. just like, worried about not liking uh, algebra or something.
1: Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Or like live in a world where when so when I'm when I if I'm a person of color I'm pulled over because my tail lights out. I go, oh, I'm pulled over because my taillight's out and I can really trust that's true as opposed to, oh, I got pulled over because I'm black and I'm also physically unsafe because m- many times those situations escalate now to arrest or you know, even, even worse into killing, right? That I can be in a social environment where I trust things are as they claim to be and so I can just not want to do my algebra or I just, you know what? Yep, my taillight was out so I got a ticket because my taillight was out, not because I was black, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the way that racism erodes people's sense of safety and health and well-being is is just mammoth. And I think that's part of why you were talking about um, the question around someone might say, like, okay, well, I'm not discriminated Like, why, why do these comedians have to, like, talk about being gay all the time or talk about being black? Why is all the jokes about that, right? And mm. that was making me think about the – that's such a that that kind of response is such evidence of how how far apart we are in terms of those folks who are in the center. We might call it like who are heterosexual or who are cisgender, who are uh, white, male, um, like not having had to think about your whiteness and your maleness that much. Um, it can be difficult to realize that. Well, one of the reasons I let's just use like if I was a comedian, which I'm not because I'm not that funny um, <laughs> If I talk about being, you're a les- killing it so far. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, if I I talk about being a lesbian a lot, it's because so much of my day to day life, there's experiences I have that do um, that 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 come to me in the social world that that are particular that happen in particular ways because I'm gay, right? And if you are not gay, it's easy to not realize that and be like, God, why is this woman talking about this all the time? Well, guess what. Um, It makes sense that those who are experiencing the impact, the negative side of systems, are much more well-versed in how much it affects every single thing. When the truth is, those who are not gay, their experience is also completely impacted by being not gay. They just don't know it, right? Right. Because they're not experiencing the harm side of it. They're experiencing the ease side of it.
0: Like... um people most people don't know what it's like to be exceptionally gangly and lanky <laughs> their their whole life but i'm very very <laughs> yes. knowledgeable about yes, that you are, and I'm so sure. i can instruct people exactly. on what it's like when you Go to a restaurant and and the waiter comes by and they're like, "Is everything okay?" And everything's fine. You just have a small stomach naturally, and people always just think exactly. that you didn't like the food. That's my that's my struggle. That's my that's right. My cross that in <laughs> <That and> algebra, <laughs> that in algebra. Um. Uh, so so the, the, the people um, people in these. uh situations and having to think about and overcome these situations this is uh this isn't just something that's on their mind a lot but this is uh this is something that uh that they're experts in that they are in a exactly. position to inform inform the rest of us we've we've talked on the on the show one of the, this is something on uh uh on on a past episode that that stuck with me uh which takes a lot because I my my days and <laughs> all all blend together. And once in a while there's just like a line um, that sticks with me. And one was from years ago, uh, I had a guest on talking about how um, people, uh, oh man, I'm gonna screw it up. people um, people empower need to take perspective and and people and uh like disadvantaged people need to like give perspective Mm -hmm. in a way so um so so people that are uh say in a higher social class or um privileged you know straight white men or whatever it might be uh, should take the opportunity to listen to people that aren't, that are, are having right. uh, are, and, and might have more to learn from those right. groups. Exactly.
1: Can I give you an example of that with kids? Yeah. Um, the, so the, the one of the ways this really kind of crystallizes for me in terms of how we think about what kind of white generation we're raising right now in a very diverse country with very severe racial injustice everywhere is that so, my, my daughter, who's nine, she has a cousin who, well, she has two cousins who are black. And she's nine, is a very common narrative in white families to say to, your, to our kids, okay, what do you do if you get lost? What if you could do when you're in trouble? Like, you're, you need to go find a police officer. Like, police officers, this is what they do. They keep us safe, right? That's the narrative. And um, that's a very quite, quote unquote normal narrative. It's a very white narrative. Um, my nephew, who's 11, who's black, who he and my older daughter are like besties, he is having, his parents are having to teach him, police are complicated, right? There are times and places where that might be what you need to do and that might be the type of person you need. And they are also starting, of course, to have to teach him how his body um, can be seen by police officers in certain ways that make him very unsafe around police. And so they're having to do this really painful um, teaching of him about how the the ways that he has to think about what he does with his hands, how he uses his voice, these kinds of things when he's encountering police and Make sure
0: your cell phone doesn't look like a gun. That's
1: right. Yeah. Right. As if. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um. And of yeah. And of course, sometimes many times that none of this, do, it doesn't even work anyway. Right. But so here's that narrative piece where we where we and it, it is a little bit like people in power needing to uh, take perspective and those who are being impacted by systems needing to give it. If my daughter, if she, if that's the only message she ever gets about police, and her cousin's getting this message about police, and having all these run-ins. I mean, we know that people of color have encounters with police all the time, even when they're doing nothing wrong, right? So police just stopping being saying, hey, buddy, you know, are you where you belong? Things like that. Um, we have all kinds of evidence of that. By the time they are 20, my daughter... My daughter would would be, if that's the only message she gets, she'll be the white student who at age 20 is like, well, I've never really thought about race. I didn't know there was this whole other world. And maybe she might even say, I'm not even sure I believe people when they complain about this stuff all the time. Because all she's ever heard is police are safe. She's only seen that. My 20-year-old cousin nephew, her cousin, is going to have this much more in-depth, experiential, nuanced... um, a completely different narrative about police and policing, right? That, you know, if we want our kids to love everybody, she can't love him, she can't be friends with him, she can't be in relationship with him if his day-to-day life experience is so unknown to her that either by age 20 she'll be like, what? Or I don't even believe you when you tell me that because I've never seen that, right? And so that's how these larger conversations about justice and truthfully talking to our kids about the reality of that they're all living in, even when it's awkward, is so critically important because they can't even this is another reason white white people tend to not really have friends who aren't white. Because if we haven't been learned about people of color's realities, why would folks want to be friends with us, right? You don't want to be friends. It's hard to be friends with someone who's completely ignorant of your actual life experience or worse, who isn't interested in learning about it. And, um, you know, I really want my kids to already be set up for authentic, rich, deep relationships across all kinds of lines of difference, including race, and they will only be able to do that if I actually do the uncomfortable sort of teach in more complicated ways even though it's sort of counterintuitive but doing what doing with my white daughter what families of color do every day with their kids
0: mm. yeah well I mean <laughs> the other thing is I mean, if- From my experience, anyway, middle school and high school were some of the most awkward years of my life. So, like,
1: we may as well just go for it and make it all. (laughs) Let's do all the awkward then, you know? Like, we shouldn't be afraid of that.
0: A a few more hours (laughs) of awkwardness (laughs) into that. So, how, uh, how, I mean, what's, so I'm now. I, I'm having my 20 year uh, high school reunion this, this year, <laughs> and uh, and it's something that I've been kind of looking back at uh, that 12 years of child prison that I had. <laughs> um, I and I'm I'm curious what uh, are you uh, are are you talking with? Um, uh, well, well, you, you have kids, so you've you've gone in and talked with schools. I imagine schools have changed. Dract- drastically since I was in them. I imagine since I was in grade school, um, these kind of conversations have started uh, becoming a little more frequent anyway than, than at least they were 20, uh, let's see, 30 years ago uh, now. God, 30 years ago, I was seven. <laughs> um, uh, what What is... Uh, uh, what is the culture like? Of I, I'm I'm not a parent. Yeah. I don't have kids. I don't uh, I don't know anything wh- about what it's like for for kids in school these right. days. But right. is is there more of of this training going on? What What do you What would you like to see happen?
1: What I would like to see I, there is more of this conversation in more schools, and I can only speak, of course, to the um, context I've been in, which is mostly the you know urban school context. I don't know what's going on in lots of the sort of more rural parts of the country. Um, But what I, and I'm not sort of deeply involved in school conversations, though I have started in the last year to have more of those. Um, Where I think schools really are right now is there is a much more careful attention to the language of valuing diversity in a way that might not have been present for lots of us growing up. Although my own journey, I came through Denver Public Schools and we were Bust, And so there was actually a lot of conversation, not exactly about diversity, but there was like we, we did the play, a play about Harriet Tubman and I was in a mostly African American school when I was in um, public school in Denver. But um, there's a much more conscious language of valuing diversity, being inclusive and celebrating differences. That's a very a stronger narrative in our schools now. Whereas it used to be much more the culture languaging around colorblindness, like love everybody the same, you know, difference maybe isn't talked about. Um, now, that's not across the board, but that's that's the push. And with that, there's a push for developing more cultural proficiency. That's the language of the day, because even while we're talking about valuing diversity in schools, we know, and there's we have all kinds of data and teachers know this, that we continue to have very significant disparities in everything from how students of color are rates of discipline of students of color, how students are disciplined, um, persistence to graduation, all these metrics that schools use to measure success. We also know that um, at least, you know, we, 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 we have had those same issues at predominantly white institutions like Drake, where I teach, where we're sitting right now. And we have done the research deeply enough to know here that It's really important we recognize that when students of color are not doing well, it's because there's things going on in the climate here. It's not about the students. They come in here just as equipped as their white peers. But when when there's a racially hostile climate, when students are navigating, um, you know, small and large hostilities on campus, um, if students are having experiences where faculty don't know their names because they, you know, white people struggle to learn and retain and recognize um, the names pronounced correctly, the names of students who who they whose names maybe seem different to them, all these things that sort of add up to the student experience. We know that that manifests in student performance. So, um, st- teachers in the public school systems know we all the we're aware we have racial disparities all over the place, and I think schools are wrestling with how to address this. One of the things that I think we need to be doing um, is that the value diversity push, which I think is of course, a vast improvement over colorblindness, what we need to recognize is that even talking about valuing diversity or even trying to become more proficient across cultural lines, which we also need to do, those two things in and of themselves are still not the same thing as building an anti-racist climate where we are practicing as educators, white educators included. If white educators are awkward around race conversations, we cannot serve the needs of our kids any of our kids if white kids are not learning the language of race and anti-racism in the classroom they are not uh we're going to have environments in our classrooms where kids are not doing well across racial lines because we know from lots of studies that young children start playing with the larger racial messages that they take in from all these other places not even just at home necessarily like parents at home might be doing great but they take in stuff from media right so um Very young ages, kids are sort of playing with race and racism in ways that might be kind of, quote unquote, innocent at that age, but that if teachers aren't equipped and feel able to support even young kids, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds having age appropriate conversations about race, difference, and anti-racism, that I think that that's where our school climates are getting stuck and kids of color in our schools end up being um, negatively impacted Both by what they experience from their white peers, but also what they then often, many of our school systems, our public schools are very racially diverse, but we tend to have lots and lots of white teachers. And so those young people are still experiencing racist and racial um, dynamics that if they don't get appropriately engaged, talked about, wrestled with, and transformed, impact them. So... That's where our schools are, is trying hard, I think, many of them, to get figure out how do we get some interventions in these racial disparities. and But I think school systems are a little bit stuck thinking that if we can just do diversity better, if we can talk about cultural proficiency better, that it's going to get us there. And I am completely convinced that that will not be enough. We have to do the work of anti-racism to improve our children's school experiences.
0: Hmm. So <laughs> here speaking of awkward. Um <laughs> you mentioned early uh, I I'm, I'm just so curious what your take is. You you did mention uh in kind of the beginning of the episode um today's today's climate, today's uh political climate it, uh, there's it's very uh heated seemingly. Issues of race, it, it, you hear people talking about culture war happening here um you know there's there's protests going on 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 all sides of the issue i i mean i even hear um even even in, in academia i've i've heard people say you know the, there's uh, these uh virtue signaling social justice warriors are out of control and they're uh, you know they're they're taking everything out on straight white guys and and uh and attacking biology and whatever else and 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 that's that's within academia let alone yeah what's happening (laughs) in in poorly educated rural communities where there's i mean i like to (laughs) give myself uh a, a little bit of credit for thinking that i have a a little bit of a finger on the pulse of of what's going on i i tour around all over the place i i meet people in all different areas around the country and the in the world even sometimes i'm lucky enough to travel internationally and i i have been uh taken back by uh, i I didn't think that I would be seeing Klan rallies yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: in in 2018. I mean, this is uh, it, there's a lot of stuff coming out of the woodwork, seemingly. And uh, as someone who has been thinking about these issues for 20 years, and you have uh, 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 rich knowledge of of the history of some of these issues, you uh look around at the uh, the political and social landscape today over the last few years when all of this stuff has really seemingly bubbled to the surface and and became really uh pretty hostile yeah i'd say what 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 does this look like through through your eyes through your, through your yeah. point of view
1: yeah what an important question i think that's the million dollar question is is what's what's going on because i think i think how we answer that question right now very well may determine the course of our future as a nation so through my eyes um One of the things I see, I think there's many dimensions to it, but one of the things that I definitely see and that I think is really important for us to wrestle with and talk about is that I think we're kind of I think I think we're yielding the the harvest of um, of really like four decades well it's i mean our whole history really but post civil let's talk post civil rights movement we're yielding the harvest of having allowed the civil rights movement to um become in our national thinking like we were done like we were done we got the civil rights Mission movement all of the laws got off the book we forget that king was assassinated right, right. 50 years ago 2 weeks ago he was assassinated We had then fires across the country because black communities were still so outraged, suffering, not, you know, continuing to be denied access to jobs, continuing to be denied access to, you know, economic empowerment, Um, you know, the vote and, and ending segregation in schools was just like the tip of the iceberg. And so one of the things that we did is we've sort of, and this is that amnesia and forgetting. It was a willful forgetting because black communities never forgot this. Latino communities didn't forget this. Communities of color have known that the problem was still there. But the white narrative has been, oh, we did it. We had civil rights, right? And that was quickly followed with this move towards a kind of cultural, white cultural shift to colorblindness around race. Oh, King taught us. Dr. King taught us we're not supposed to notice race. That is actually a distortion of what King was talking about, but that's that's the legacy of the message. And so I think what has happened, what we're seeing now, what through um, through my eyes, what I see is that four decades of white silence, uh, an unwillingness or an inability on white communities' part to grow, continue to grow our anti racist lenses so we can see racism when it's there. And learn that when racism is happening, white people actually have the ability to learn a skill set to interrupt and challenge it and to work with communities of color for racial justice. We just haven't done any of that for four decades. And so I think in white communities, there's been this um, ongoing festering racial animosity that, you know, white kind of liberal-ish types like myself um, have have allowed to just fester because we haven't engaged in really important truth-telling historically rooted conversations as in in white communities and that some of the yields of this last election cycle um, some of them I mean I think there's a whole bunch of pieces but one is that those elements were always there in the woodwork right they just you know partly they've been unleashed because the current president-elect has emboldened those forces by being unable to say things like, Oh, if there's Nazi flags and Confederate flags being waved at a rally with torches, that's bad. And said, he's like, Oh, it's a, this is all sides, right? right? Those forces have been emboldened, but the reality is they were there and their ability to be there and remain there is, is part of a huge failure of white folks like myself, liberal and justice committed folks, to engage in hard community conversations in white, in white communities, for lack of a better word, that we've just let we've just mostly had white silence and thought we've just we've fixed this, we're good. And sort of justice will naturally be the arc of the universe. Well, justice is never the arc of the universe. King taught us that like the arc of the universe, even though he believed it bended towards justice, it doesn't do that on its own. And I think white folks have not done we have we stopped working after the civil rights movement, and um, and that's really um, you know communities of color. They've known that was the case. That's this is none of this. Very little of this is a surprise to them. Um, but we are now yielding the 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 harvest, the the really frightening harvest of our failure to sort of keep at it. That's what I see.
0: <laughs> so I, I mean I i have uh i am I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that i've spent the last like year and a half or, or so in really in kind of shock of yeah. what's yeah. <laughs> of what's happening you, you're I not did,
1: the only white person like lots of white i didn't people see it coming shocked. right i didn't i, I, I like, didn't like even a guy really that, see it coming I, I didn't see it coming at this level and i don't and i'm I'm shocked by very little, but even i have found myself sort of surprised at the level of anyway so
0: I'm yeah not- no I mean it, yeah it's, I, I, I was uh, uh, yeah to, to have someone that really made their um, uh, uh, st- uh, staked their political claim on on uh, you know the uh, uh, birth certificate conspiracy and then, uh, like that's how they got their political start right you know, which is I mean if that's not racist, I don't know exactly what is exactly, uh, uh, and and that's how that person, uh, the president of the United States, is the spokesman for our country. That's Correct. how they got our, their, their political start. Yeah. Uh, not even to mention all of the other things, right? Since that would just endless, right? Uh, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't even know. And then I and then you read surveys of something like 50 some percent of like white males still approving like what world I guess I'm just like am I hanging out with different people like I th- like I I had no idea that uh, uh, yeah I I'm I find the whole thing shocking um, maybe that's just my ignorance of of what people's lives actually are or maybe people just keep a lot of themso- this to themselves yeah. until, I, I I don't know. What, I, well,
1: I, you know, one thing I think that's in that 54% is also a whole bunch, and there's people in my life, white people in my life, who who said and did this. Uh, so certainly there's like the, the really avid supporters of all of that, right, who would claim that kind of way of seeing the world. But I think also in that 54% is a whole bunch of folks who – would say, you know what, I don't like those things, but they're not so bad that I wouldn't vote for this person for these other reasons. Right, Which,
0: economic reasons right. or something.
1: And so that, and that's more of that... Uh, the, the way our experiences divide, uh, like, oh, that's just, oh, that's just, okay, he doesn't really mean that all Mexicans are rapists, right? I, or, or I don't agree with that, but I can still vote for him. I don't agree with that, but I you can't have everything, so I'll vote anyway, right? Whereas if you are the person who's being called that, or you're the person who's being called that, and it's unleashing violence against your community, that's not a negotiable, you know, you know, Oh, you can't have everything in one candidate, and so that's. I think there's a whole bunch of a whole bunch of white Americans for whom, well, he might not be my ideal, and I don't agree with those things, but I can still we can I'll tolerate that, yeah. right? And that to me is the I'm 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 most deeply scared by and saddened by and and uh, find that to be the most urgent thing that worries me way more than the the right wing. Supporters that we would have so many whites who are willing to actually say, "Well, I I can look past those things," because that apathy, I think, is what can destroy a society. I mean, I just that that that's the most frightening dimension of all this to me.
0: Right. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) And what what do we do? Is I mean, you talk about. uh, I mean, this is it's just such a. Big question. So, so you talk about how to how to better raise our kids and possibly change our our school systems. But I mean, what do I? What do you say to uh, to someone who's like, you know, in their in their forties or fifties or something and has, there probably has their mind made up quite a bit, quite a bit more. Do you? Yeah. Do you? Just, I mean, I I think about people in my life. And I'm like, well. I don't think is there hope there. Is there something that that you can say? Is, is, I I don't know the way for. Do you just wait for uh, for the uh, you know a generation to <laughs> to die off and the next one to take yeah. over? That seems like uh, that
1: won't work. Uh, that's the problem, right? That I mean, that's the that's I had started when I started teaching. I used to hear this all the time, like, "Oh, our biggest racism is going to be we're doing so much better." and so racism will take care of itself with the next generation. And right. then I started teaching 19-year-olds. And I was like, "Oh my god. That uh, uh nope, not it, nope, because they're being raised by the same folks. Right. who is the current generation. Now we're talking about needing to just <laughs> die off, right? And that's why this is so urgent. And and you know what? I think with the 40-year-olds who've maybe more made up their minds, I really think that those of us who are white and who are care about these problems and are wanting a different future, especially when it comes to racial justice, we need to make those values very clear in our lives. And while we do that, stay in conversation with those folks, because I have seen folks, I mean, if I think about where I was now, I wasn't 40, but where I was when I was 20, compared to where I am now, and what I know that I want and what I see as possible and how I feel equipped to live my values and fight in the fight in a loving way in the political environment for my values. I'm like, "Oh my god, people can totally change, right?" And I've seen lots of folks change in my life. Folks I who I might still disagree with, but who I've journeyed with because they're in my family or whatever for 20 years. And it's not always pretty, but I keep showing up and living my values, being clear about my values and staying in dialogue with them. Um not lying, not not softening things. I'm very truthful, but we're in a relationship, so it's a, you know, it's a it's sort of a particular kind of um exchange that's happened over time. And I've watched those folks also move i have family members who 20 years ago absolutely would have supported the current president and who now are appalled by him Mm -hmm. partly because of the what he says and does on race and so um and that's not i'm not saying oh that's because of me but like i think we i think 40 year olds can change their minds um and i also think that there are lots of 40 year olds whose uh minds are already in the appropriate like the justice committed the justice oriented place like don't like what's going on don't but who also don't know what to do and so I think that 40-year-olds can learn and be supported in figuring out some of the ways they can take action to sort of translate, you know, you ask most 40-somethings, they're going to say, yeah, I, w- I believe in equity. Okay, so how do we make those that value actionable at whatever your sphere of influence is? Where are you living that out um, in your, whatever your sphere of influence is, how, do, how does one know that you believe in equity? What are you doing to change policies and practices and, and grow a different climate so that more and more, it's really clear that diversity and equity and justice is the kind of world we want. We can all do that, um, but some of but we sometimes aren't quite sure how to do it, and so we need to be sort of pushing and supporting each other into learning of, learning how to do those things. However old we are, because I do think even I'm 46. I hope I change my mind a lot in the next 20 years. So, you know, yeah. I think we can. I think we need to just do it everywhere, all the time, with everybody.
0: Well, that's terrific. Uh, well, I have each guest to name a uh, an organization of their choice at the end nice. of each episode.
1: Yeah. So I would say, uh, you know, for me right now, funneling resources to organizations like Black Lives Matter is urgent because um, the communities Black Lives Matter represents and is organizing for they literally their um, their lives and communities are 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 um, under siege right now, and so we need to support them even if we don't know quite. How to show up as activists ourselves, we can funnel resources there. So Black Lives Matter chapter, local Black Lives Matter chapter or some other um, immigrant justice group in your area that um, really, really needs resources right now because they're fighting for young people's lives.
0: Well, uh, well, thank you thank for you, joining me. This and, is great, and uh, yeah, thank you, uh, thank you, listeners, and make sure and check out your new your fourth book, right? Fourth book, uh, raising white kids, raising uh,
1: white kids, bringing up children in a racially unjust America.
0: Yeah, this is uh, it's going to help make uh, make some of these seemingly awkward conversations much uh, less awkward and, yes. and much more informed. More importantly, well, thank you,
1: thank you so much.
0: Next week on the show, we're talking about Alzheimer's with Rebecca Hood, we're talking a little neuroscience, a little biochemistry, figuring out let's get rid of this Alzheimer's thing. Just yeah, I'm sick of it. Are you? I'm done with it. Let's get rid of it. We talk about how to how to treat it, uh, how to alleviate it, how to prevent it. Uh, fascinating conversation, not just because of the groundbreaking uh, work that Rebecca is working on, but also. Uh, an illustration of, of some of the uh, many frustrations that come along with uh, being a scientist, a researcher, and, and uh, the, the ups and downs and of, of working toward achieving a, a big goal like getting rid of Alzheimer's. So... Uh, awesome episode um thanks for supporting me on patreon.com slash shane moss uh i've i've been releasing regularly for uh the last the last handful of weeks i've been releasing uh a podcast on there uh that you can hear it's a lot of personal life stuff and it's a lot of me just getting goofy and uh riffing on weird ideas so uh, please check that out, even if uh, you're like, I'm already uh, maxed out, I can't, uh, I can't do another podcast right now, well, your support on Patreon helps out this podcast that you already know and love, so I would very much appreciate that. Music brought to you this week by The Long Hunt. Make sure and check out the Jimmy Fro podcast for new indie music those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites